Now we come to chapter 21, and here we have this social legislation. It's quite interesting, some of the things that are dealt with here. And I begin reading at verse 1, because this has to do with master and servant. And that was a pretty important issue in that day. After all, these people had been slaves in Egypt. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. In other words, they could never permanently make one of their brethren a slave. Now, verse 3, "...if he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I'll not go out free." Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through and all, and he shall serve him forever. Now, this is a remarkable thing that's put right here. And here's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, if there ever was one. And it's a beautiful one. The law is this. If a man is a slave, and he can go out in seven years. And if he was married when he became a slave, he'd take his wife out. But if while he's a slave, that he gets a wife, and that means one that's a slave of his master, then he can go out, but not his wife. She can't go out free. And so if he say, though, well, I love my wife. And I love my master. I want to stay. And then he takes an awl and bores them through. Well, that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how in the world can that be a picture of him? Well, I think a very wonderful picture of him. He came to this earth, and he took upon himself our humanity. And we were all slaves of sin. He could have gone out free. He didn't have to die upon the cross, but... He came down to this earth, and he became a servant, obedient even unto death. And he died and went through the same gate we did in order that he might get a bride for himself. But he had to be crucified to do it. And the writer to the Psalms takes that picture and uses it. Over in Psalm 40, verse 6, "...sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened." Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It's written of me. I delight to do thy will, O God, yea, thy law is within mine heart. And that refers to Christ. Somebody says, How do you know it refers to Christ? Well, if you would turn over to the 10th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, why we find there that it was fulfilled when our Lord came to this earth. Because in Hebrews 10:5 it says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, now speaking of Christ, he saith, Sacrifice and offering, thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Now, it's not his ears he's digged, but he gave him a body. And Christ took upon himself a body, and he'll have that body throughout eternity. But he could have left this earth without dying. But he said, I love the church. I love the sinner. And so he died 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What a picture this is of Christ right here after giving the Ten Commandments. Now we have here a series of laws that have to do with injuries to a person. I think it's well to note this. Verse 12, "...he that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death." Now, this is the basis for capital punishment. Now, great many today, especially these young people have been fed a bunch of malarkey today, a bunch of propaganda, and they're told that thou shalt not kill means you can't become a soldier. May I say that the Lord says that a government has a perfect right. He that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. The nation Israel could put to death any murderer. It's well to look at the total word of God, by the way. And then verse 13, And if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place whither he shall flee. Now, we're going to come to that later, the cities of refuge. But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. In other words, if the murder is premeditated, the man is to be executed. Now, if he does not do it maliciously, and I think oftentimes in self-defense that a man without premeditation attempts to defend himself, I would say that that would not merit an execution at all. Now, will you notice how God protected the family? Verse 15, "...he that smiteth his father or his mother shall be surely put to death." God certainly protected the home. "...and he that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death." God did not approve slavery at all. It was the system in that day. And God always dealt with those things. But it doesn't mean that he approves them. In fact, it's quite obvious he condemned it. He that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If a man strive together, and one smite another with a stone or with his fist, and he die not, but keepeth his bed, why, then he's to reimburse him. You see, here's the basis of the laws of our land. Now, I'm not going to go down through all of these but I would recommend that you read this, because here is the basic of law and order, and any nation must have something built on this, my friend, if they're to have a civilized nation. And it's in here, verse 24, "...eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe." In other words, friends, there is this law of reciprocity. This is a law that must be enforced if there is to be law and order and protection of human life and property. And thank God, though, that there is one who is prepared, though, to extend grace to us that we might be saved. And now, friends, as we come to the 22nd chapter of the book of Exodus, we're in this section that deals with what we've labeled social legislation. You see, the Ten Commandments and the order for the altar were given in chapter 20. Then you have this social legislation, 21 to 24. And then you have the instructions for building the tabernacle, which was part of the Mosaic system. And then the service of it in the book of Leviticus. 
Now, certain basic social laws are put down here, and these laws are basic for any kind of what we would call a civilized society. There are those that raise the question about what's right and what's wrong. Well, today, what is right and what's wrong is relative. There's no question about that. A college professor was discussing this with me. He claims to be an atheist, and he said that the right and wrong is relative. It's what you think is right. What I might think is right would be something else, and that's true. And he said, then, what do you base your dogmatic conclusions? I said, well, I base them on the Word of God. I said, now, very candidly, my nature's like your nature, and I'd like to give in in certain places, and I'd like to let down the bars here and there. But I said, there is a standard. And the very interesting thing is that this standard has produced a society in which there has been a measure of law and of justice in the world. And these things are basic to that type of thing. And it gets down and just deals with everyday living, right down with a nitty-gritty, right where we live today, where we live and move and have our being. And it, frankly, is very boresome in a way just to read through. It's like almost reading through a law book. And the very interesting thing, our laws are based largely upon this. I'm very happy that the Word of God says, Thou shalt not kill. It protects me and my family. It's a law that's been put down. And I'm happy that it says, Thou shalt not steal, because it protects what little property that I've got. And these things, you see, are basic to any kind of an ordered society. Now, I'm reading, and I'll not read everything through here, but there are certain things we'll lift out. Back in 21, we dealt with the person, that there were injuries to the person, laws for the protection of the person. Now you have here the protection of property. I begin reading at verse 1 of Exodus 22. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, don't ask me why five oxen should be restored for an ox or four sheep for a sheep, because I don't know, other than I would say that the sheep would be more valuable, actually, than the oxen would be. And this we see working itself out. You remember Zacchaeus said that if he'd taken anything from any man by false accusation, he'd restore him fourfold. Why did he say that? Well, he was referring back, you see, to the Mosaic law. Now, our law today would say that a man would be given damages if someone destroys your property, and it could be an automobile or something else. Well, they don't have to give you five automobiles or four automobiles if they'd steal yours or destroy yours. But we just ask that they restore the same one or restore that of equal value. But you see, this was a great protection that was put down. And I'm of the opinion it would be better had we made it like the Word of God is. The very interesting thing is that the Word of God seems to hit the nail on the head when we are dealing with human nature, whether it's back 
4,000 B.C. or 2,000 A.D. Human nature's always the same, and God's always the same, and he deals with man on this kind of a basis. Now, verse 2, "...if a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him." That's self-protection. I heard of the ridiculous thing that took place some time ago in this land, and I can't put my finger on it, and I didn't read about it. I hear about it on the news. But I was told that a thief was breaking into a man's place, and the man who lived there shot the thief, and the thief sued him for several thousand dollars damages. And the thief won the judgment because the man shouldn't have shot him, according to some asinine judge that we have today on the bench. And as a result, why this poor man had to sell his property. Now, that meant that you cannot protect your property. That is, you'd not be safe in your own home. Well, God protected the man's property, protected his home. That if a man is breaking in and it's necessary to kill a man, I wouldn't want to shoot a man breaking in unless it was absolutely necessary. But I think a man's justified to protect his property, his home, and his loved ones. And as a result, why, there should be no judgment against that man at all. You see, these are basic principles, and it gives you law and order. Had the social legislation been followed that's given way back here in the book of Exodus, we wouldn't have the social problems that we're having on the streets and in the cities of the United States today, friends. You see, we have judges today who have been to Harvard Law School and affected by liberalism. And very candidly, we argue about whether a man has the ability to serve on the Supreme Court. Yet, if a man's dishonest, we don't seem to raise any question about whether he can serve or not. But all the way through, the entire legal system is shot through with men today who are dealing with a legal system that was actually based on the Word of God, and they don't know how to handle it because they're so far from it themselves, and their entire background is such that they're not able to interpret it. And may I just add this word? The Constitution of the United States was written by men. They were not Christian, all of them. Very few of them were. They were deists for the most time. But they had a certain respect for the Word of God. And I've heard a man recently say that Thomas Jefferson ridiculed the Bible. No, he didn't. The quotations of Thomas Jefferson were that he had great respect for the Word of God. But the important thing is he didn't believe it. He didn't follow it. The moral teachings that Thomas Jefferson wrote actually take the story of Jesus, but they leave out the miraculous altogether. But the important thing is this legal system just happened to be basic to our system in this country. And now we have men who do not have that background, and we're in trouble today. And I mean deep trouble, and our entire system is being changed on that kind of a basis. That's the reason this is so important through here. Now, let me keep reading, and I must just lift out certain things. It says, "...if the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him." 
for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. In other words, if a man steals, he has to make up that which he's stolen, even to the place of selling him as a slave. Verse 5, "...if a man shall cause a field or vineyard to be eaten, and shall put in his beast, and shall feed in another man's field, of the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard, shall he make restitution." In other words, if a man has a cow or a sheep, and they break through into another man's field, then he's to make restitution. And if fire break out and catch in thorns, so that the stacks of corn or the standing corn of the field be consumed therewith, he that kindled a fire shall surely make restitution. You see how practical this is, friends? And actually how right it is, by the way. This is God putting down certain great basic principles for the weal and welfare of mankind here on this earth. And he's giving it. This is the Mosaic system given to his people, and they were to be an example to the nations of the world. And then if you read on, you find many of these laws. Now, I'm not wanting to lift out all of them. I'm trying to let us see a great principle here. And it's very important, I think, to see that. Now, I drop down to verse 16, and this is actually crimes against persons. Verse 16, "...if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife." In other words, if a man rape a girl, he's forced to marry her. That's the way we put it today. At least it was formerly. It's not quite like that today. But suppose if a father utterly refused to give her unto him, he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. In other words, he shall pay a penalty for what is done. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Now, I'll be coming back to that when we get to Deuteronomy. And I can only make this suggestion that today... We are seeing a resurgence of Satan worship and of the supernatural that is appearing again in the world. And it's potent, friends. There's no question about that. And this is connected with it. Don't think this is superstition. We're not back in New England in colonial days now. We're in the 20th century, and we're seeing this appear today and it happens to be a reality. I'll be dealing with that when we get over in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy. Now, whoso lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death. And this shows how low man can go. He can sink down till he's as low as the beasts of the field. And this is an evidence of it. And God made a law. Why did he make a law? Well, because this was being done, friends. Verse 20, "...he that sacrifice unto any god, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed." Now, this was the severest penalty of all. And had it been followed to the very letter, why, we would have today a much better society than we have. I recognize this is harsh. But after all, when you've got a cancer or a tumor, you want to cut it out, friends. And you want to get rid of it. And this is what this happens to be. 
Now, it says here, verse 21, "...thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt." This is the good neighbor policy, you see. "...ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child." Do you know what got rid of this child labor and where the child labor laws came from? came from the Wesley Revival, friends. The Word of God has been basic to all of these great movements that have brought blessing to mankind. And the fatherless child, where did orphans' homes start? Did they begin them in communist China or under Christian auspices? Verse 23, "...if thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I'll surely hear their cry." And I believe that God protects these that are helpless today. I tell you, there's a great day of judgment coming for those that have mistreated folk in conditions like this. And he says here, "...and my wrath shall wax hot, and I'll kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless." God's very severe when he's talking about law, friends. It's very severe here. Now he says, "...if thou lend money to any of my people that's poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as a usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury." In other words, excessive interest. You don't take advantage of it. And yet we find that has taken place today. Over in chapter 23, "...thou shalt not raise a false report." Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Be careful what you say. And God had a law concerning that. Did you know that a gossip, friends, is as bad as a murderer in your midst, or a thief, or an adulterer? And yet today the gossiper gets by. God had a law for this, you see. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. This would put you out of the marching business and protesting, friends. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. I was very much interested in meeting a very attractive young fellow. You would call him a hippie. He was a hippie type. And I asked him why he did all this. And he said because he was trying to find his identity. We've got a lot of people trying to find out who they are. And it's too bad they lost their baby tag somewhere along the line. But he said that he wanted liberty and freedom and was protesting. Well, fine. I said to him, but how much liberty do you have? I asked him about his dress, and he said that was the expression of it. I said, well, they just happened to be about 10,000 of these folk dressed just like you are. Would you dare dress differently than they dress and run with them? Would they accept you? And he said, no. Well, I said, you don't have much freedom, do you? You've got to dress like they dress. I said, you see, you don't have the liberty that you think you have. And I said that when they protest, you have to get in line and protest, don't you? He said, yes, he did. And I said, then you don't really have much freedom. Don't follow a multitude to do evil. Neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. This is... Uh, very good law to read today. God is very much up to date, is he not? Neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. May I say to you that judgment should not be swayed toward the rich or toward the poor. Judgment and justice should be exercised. You know that the Romans depicted justice as being a woman. That is, it must be tender. 
but also blindfold, no respecter of persons, and a sword in one hand, which means that when the judgment is handed down, there'll be the execution of the penalty. But in the other hand are the scales, and it'll be fair. That's the thing that needs to be exercised today in our midst. Now, God gives them uh, again this law concerning the Sabbath day and the sabbatic year. Verse 10, six years thou shalt sow thy land, and thou shalt gather in the fruits thereof. But the seventh year thou shalt let it rest and lie still. Now, we'll find out when they go into the land, God We'll go over this with him. We'll get that in the book of Leviticus, this matter of the Sabbath day, the sabbatic year, and the year of Jubilee. And I'll reserve until we get there to go into detail concerning this. This is very important. And you'll notice he gives it in a very brief way here at the beginning, but he'll go into detail concerning this later. Now he says in verse 14, three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month Abed. For in it thou camest out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the firstfruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of thy field. Three times in the year all thy males shall appear before the Lord. Now, that'll be given to us again, friends, when we get over to the book of Numbers, and we'll find out that it was the Passover feast and the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, that all the males had to go to Jerusalem. Now, before they get in the land, they're told certain laws that will guide them when they get in the land. Verse 20, "...behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way, and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, and obey his voice." Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. There's always been the question of who is this angel, and I think many of you already know my interpretation. They all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And then you'll notice, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. You see, it's the Lord Jesus that they were to obey. This is the one definitely here. Now, we are told that when they went into the land, that they would find there an enemy, and the land was filled with the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and Electrolytes. And God says, I intend to put them out of the land. And it's because of their sin that God did that. Now, the Lord says to them, I will send my fear before thee, and I'll destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come, and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. And God says that I intend to put you in that land. Now, he tells them very carefully here in verse 32, "...thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods." 
Now, you'll find out that was the great mistake of Joshua of making a covenant with the Gibeonites that were in that land. He didn't think they were in that land, but they were. And he made a big mistake by not investigating more. And, of course, the reason they went into Babylonian captivity is because they went into idolatry and served other gods. Now, this brings us down now to chapter 24 of Exodus. We're going to conclude this very brief section on social legislation. It began in chapter 21 through 24. And actually, there's more that has to do with social legislation than with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are very brief, frankly, but the social legislation covers a great deal. And we'll find that there's much more to the law than the Ten Commandments. Now, I begin reading here in Exodus 24, verse 1. And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. Now, don't miss that. God says you're to come up to the mountain. But even these men who were in a very unique position were told to worship ye afar off. Now, how different that is under law than it was when God was bringing them on eagles' wings, which is grace. And that's the way God today saves us and leads us along life's pathway. And he says that we've been made nigh by the blood of Christ today. But you see, under law now, they're told, "...worship ye afar off." And verse 2, "...and Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him." And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord hath said will we do. Now, this is the second time that the children of Israel have given affirmative answer when God asked them, did they want his commandments, his law? And they said yes. And they are very self-confident, self-sufficient, and actually almost arrogant. All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And they don't have all of them yet. They have been given the Ten Commandments, and yet they think they can do it. And someone says, well, how in the world could they be so self-deceived? Well, I don't know. That's something that puzzles me, because I know a great many people today that honestly think they are living by law and that they're meeting God's standard. Self-deception is a terrible thing. I don't think, frankly, there's anything quite like it. And you remember John had something to say about this matter of self-deception. He said that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You never deceive your neighbors, and you won't deceive your wife or your husband or your loved ones, but you sure can deceive yourself. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Well, you'd think that a man 
that says he has no sin ought to have also a little truth in him. But John says that he deceives himself and there's no truth in him at all. And in case you missed it, John repeated that again in the first chapter, the last verse of First John. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in it. Now, I didn't say it, friends. John said it. John said that if you say that you have not sinned, that you keep God's law, then you've made God a liar. And friends, God's no liar. I wouldn't want to call him that if I were you. So the best thing to do is not to boast of your goodness. My, the arrogance of these people. All the words which the Lord hath said will we do, but they didn't do them. Now will you notice, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and builded an altar upon the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, listen to it, now they've heard it, it's written down, all that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. Now, these people certainly had confidence, and it was nothing in the world, of course, but self-confidence. They thought that they could do it, but they didn't do it. And that is self-deception of the worst kind, of course. We'll be obedient, they said to God, but they were not obedient to God. You know, the natural man thinks that he can please God, but he cannot please God. You and I cannot please him at all. You and I can't meet his standard. We forget that we are actually the members of a race that, as far as God is concerned, is totally depraved. You and I belong to those that are disobedient to God. And if you would doubt that, why don't you look around you in the world today? Look at all of the lawlessness. Look at the sin that's in the world, the confusion that's in the world, and the atheism and godlessness that's in the world. Friends, God's accurate when he tells us that they're none righteous, no, not one. All you have to do is to look about you today. And we're living in a day when sin is called good. Bad is called good. And Isaiah said that day would come. Well, we've certainly arrived there. Now, verse 8, And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord had made with you concerning all these words. Now, even before he gives it to them, why, these people are sprinkled with blood that let them know that there must be a sacrifice and that without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. God will repeat that many times for them. Life must be given up. The penalty must be paid if you and I are ever to go to heaven. Now, will you notice, verse 9, "...then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. 
And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Now, again and again, this occurs, and there is confusion, I recognize, in the way that our translation gives it. They saw the God of Israel. Candidly, they didn't see him. God is a spirit, and no man hath seen God at any time. They saw the representation of God, of course. And that is what you have when you get to the book of Revelation. You feel like when you get there that when John's caught up to heaven, he saw a throne, and in the midst of the throne, you feel like holding your breath. Well, my, we at last going to see God. And you read that. It's nothing in the world but a representation of God. I do not want to get into this part of the argument, but I sincerely doubt whether we shall see God the Father throughout eternity. I'm of the opinion that the closest we'll ever get will be to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And after all, that's the only way we can know God today is through Him. I do not know how He looks. I do not know how He feels. I do not know how He thinks. His thoughts are way above my thoughts, and His ways are different than my ways. Therefore, He must reveal Himself. Now, what they saw here was a representation of God. And it's quite evident. There were under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Does that tell you anything about God, my friend? doesn't tell me a thing. It's just representation that we have there. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel... He laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. Now, this was a representation. You remember later on, Moses asked that he might see God because all he'd seen had been a representation, and he wanted to see him. And you remember that that was the plea and the question of Philip yonder in the upper room. Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And at that time, you remember, the Lord said to this man, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. You want to see God, friends, you'll have to go through Jesus Christ. And I hear a great many people today, generally it's some man giving a testimony, some earnest layman, and he talks about that he was far from God, and now he says, I can come right directly into the presence of God. No, you don't. <laughs> you have no right there. I, I have no right there. We don't come directly like that, friends. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, if you're going to come to God, you're going to come through Christ. He is the mediator. He's the daysman that Job talked about that put one hand in God's hand, one hand in our hand, and bring us together. We don't go there on our own. We need to recognize that. Now, will you notice, this is a tremendous representation we have here. We read now verse 13, "...and Moses rose up, and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God." You notice that Joshua is beginning now to get into the picture and God was preparing him all the time to succeed Moses. He's a young man. Now, notice what Moses said, verse 14. He said unto the elders, 
tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire. You see, it was the glory of the Lord. And even that was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount forty days and forty nights. Now, during that time, he got the instructions that we have in the rest of this book. Now, from chapter 25 through 30, you have the blueprint for the tabernacle and the pattern for the garments for the high priest. And then you have the construction of the tabernacle and the erection of it and the fact it was filled with the glory of the Lord. So that here for about 15 chapters, 25 through 40, with the exception of about three chapters here when Moses went down and when they had made the golden calf. So that this is what he was getting up in the mount. And not only this, but the book of Leviticus, you will find he also was getting up there. For you have the tabernacle and the service of it. And the very center of the children of Israel, the very center of their camp, the most important part was the tabernacle, because it was the place where they approached God. Now, I want to, as we come now to chapter 25, and I probably first should read this first part of it. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. Ye shall take my offering. Now, these people are just out of slavery. They've just been out of slavery just a few months. And now they're asked to make a contribution to the Lord. And it's an amazing contribution that these people made to the Lord, by the way. They brought more than enough. This is the only time I've ever heard of it that people were asked to stop giving. After they'd given enough to make the tabernacle, Moses had to put up the stop sign and say, we got enough. I've never heard that before. And I'm sure it's never been my experience and probably not your experience. Now, they are slaves, and they're to bring these offerings. And this is what they're to bring. Verse 3, "...and this is the offering which shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet." That was evidently the colors that they used in the land of Egypt. And they still are bright today when they find them in the tomb. Believe me, the colors that these people used were remarkable. And either it was the color or it was cloth, this color. And I'm of the opinion that they dyed all the material that they used in the tabernacle. Blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen. And this is that fine twine 
Egyptian byssus linen. And we'll talk about that later. And goat's hair. And ram skins dyed red. And badger skins. And that's seal skins, by the way. And chittim wood. Oil for the light. Spices for anointing oil. And for sweet incense. Onyx stones. And stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Now, these were the things they would have bring. And the question arises, where did they get them? These people are just out of slavery. You will recall that we have seen where they were told to go to their masters and borrow. That's the way our translation reads. Actually, what it means, they were given this, and they were to ask it as back wages. Now, they've got 400 years of back wages to collect. It's said they spoiled the Egyptians. They took out a tremendous wealth. And it's estimated that at least $5 million of material went into the construction of the tabernacle alone. It was very small because it had to be carried on the wilderness march. But it was a very ornate, rich, beautiful thing. It was a thing of beauty. Now, verse 8 of chapter 25 and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, notice God never said that he was going to live in the tabernacle. fact of the matter is, he did not. It said he dwelt between the chair you beam, by the way. And that is important to see. You see, Israel was a theocracy. That is, Jehovah was king. That was the great song of Moses when they crossed the Red Sea, you'll recall. He sang that song in which he said very definitely that God was the king. It was a great song of redemption. And the Lord is a man of war, and that he is king. Jehovah is king. And now these people are to be ruled over by God. And the ark was really God's throne. He didn't sit upon it. It was between the cherubims. In other words, he actually didn't touch down, to tell the truth. He dwelt between the cherubims, and that's where they met him. This idea today that God dwells in a building made with hands is not true. The Bible does not teach that. That's a heathen, pagan notion. And a great many people call the church building today. They call it the church, and they call it God's house. Well, it's not. God doesn't dwell in a house, friends, and he never did. But this is a place where he met with them. It was a meeting place, and it was to teach them that. And the ark in there was God's throne. And that, by the way, will be the first article of furniture that they were to build. God didn't sit upon it, but he did sit between the cherubims. And Psalm 99, 1 reads, The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble, he that sitteth between the cherubims. And therefore we'll find when we come to it, the ark is the most important article of furniture. It's given here next. That will be that which we are to see. Now will you notice verse 9, According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. 
Now, it was a pattern of the one in heaven. We are told that over in the epistle to the Hebrews, and we'll see that later on, that the tabernacle was made like the one in heaven. Now, the question arises, is there a literal tabernacle in heaven? And I take the position that there is. You're going to find out, those of you that are new to our study, that I take the Bible very literally. I have a very, I suppose, naive notion that when God says something, He means it. And that if He means something else, He'll make that clear to us also. And I think that He made it very clear that there was one in heaven. And we'll have occasion to refer to that later on, and especially when we get to the epistle to the Hebrews. We come now to the first article of furniture that's mentioned. Now, those of you who have our notes, and I hope all of you get the notes, you're going to find that I have in there a diagram of the floor plan of the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was built 30 cubits by 10 cubits, and outside was a fence around it, and it was 100 cubits by 50 cubits. And in that outer court that was formed by the tabernacle and this fence that was around it, and it was, by the way, five cubits high, why, we find two articles of furniture, the brazen altar and the lava. And then the tabernacle proper was divided into two compartments, the holy place and the holy of holies. And the holy place was 20 by 10 cubits. The holy of holies was 10 by 10, and it was 10 cubits high. And this was really the tabernacle proper. These two compartments formed one. And the first compartment was the holy of holies. That was where the ark was. And then when you moved outside, you have the holy place. And there are three articles of furniture there. The golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. I do hope you'll get the notes and outlines here, friends. You'll find them extremely helpful. Now, I have the chart that I have with my notes right before me now. I hope many of you have that. And you'll find it extremely Helpful. Now, you'll notice that the first article of furniture that's given is the ark. That's in the Holy of Holies. That's where God is looking out. But if you went outside and man is on the outside, man would come to the gate of the tabernacle there on the east, and the article of furniture that would be before him would be the brazen altar. So that when man comes into God, he'll have to go by the brazen altar and the laver, and the holy place, which is the place of worship. And then in the holy of holies, he'd never go, because into that went the high priest, and only he went once a year, and then only with blood, and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Now, I want to read the instructions here, because we're approaching this from God's viewpoint, from the inside looking out. Now, I'm reading verse 10. Exodus 25, "...and they shall make an ark of chittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof." Now, let me pause a moment for us to look at this matter of what is a cubit, that is, how long is a cubit. Well, 
I do not know. There are many explanations given, anything from 12 inches up to about 30-some-odd inches. Well, I have a notion that they didn't have a yardstick in that day or a tape measure. The way they really measured was from the tip of the finger, of the middle finger, all the way back to the elbow. Now, you measure yours, and you will find out it's about 18 inches. Now, if you're a short person, won't be that long. If you're a tall person, it'll be longer than that. But approximately, it's 18 inches. You can well understand that if a man's running a dry goods store in that day and he's going to buy goods, why, he'd have as a buyer a big tall fella with a long reach from the elbow back up to that middle finger. But when he was selling the stuff, why, he'd get little short folk to be his salespeople, and it wouldn't be so far. You could see how he could work a thing like that. So evidently, a cubit varied, and that's the reason I think we come up with so many explanations. But it was approximately 18 inches. And I think we can more or less settle on 18 inches and say that it was 18 inches. Now, that would mean that the tabernacle itself was 30 cubits, which would mean 45 feet. Our 10 across would mean 15 feet. So that everything, if it is to be put into terms of our measurement today, a foot, then we come up with something else. So that two and a half cubits, well, that would be, and I'll almost let you figure that one out, because the two cubits, you see, there would be the yard there, and the half would be then about nine inches, so that it would be put on that kind of basis. But now I'm going to keep it in terms of the cubit, and then let you think in terms of the foot, for the very simple reason that it'll be easy for me to do that, and I'll let you do the figure, and that is, if you want to get some conception of exactly what size it was. Now, again, may I say that this ark was God's throne. He didn't sit on it. He dwelt between the cherubims, which were right above it. But God didn't touch down in the tabernacle. It wasn't his dwelling place. It's a place where he could dwell to meet with the children of Israel. In other words, it was a place for them to approach God. And the tabernacle speaks of Christ. You and I come through a mediator to God today. And that mediator, of course, is Christ. And you and I come through him. Now, this is the sanctum sanctorium of the tabernacle, the ark here. And now you're not going to find this very interesting. And you'll think I've got a lot of nerve reading these instructions. But I'm going to read them, and I hope not too many of you will tune out. Verse 10, "...and they shall make an ark of chitim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof." And two rings shall be in one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of chitim wood, and overlay them with gold. Thou shalt put the staves in the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. Now, you see, the tabernacle was for the wilderness march. And it was taken down when they were ready to march. 
It was put together when they came into camp. And we're going to see when we get the book of Numbers how orderly that was. And it was something that would be quite amazing to see them put it together. Rings were put there to put the staves through, and then the staves, a long pole put through, put on the shoulders of the priests, and they would carry these articles of furniture through the wilderness. And that was the purpose for them. Now, together with the ark, there went a mercy seat. Now, it's a separate article of furniture, but it was nothing in the world but a top for the box. Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims beams of gold, of beaten work. Shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on one end, and the other cherub on the other. And even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. Now notice what God says here. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. That is, they look down upon the mercy seat. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I'll commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I'll give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now, the mercy seat actually was just sort of a chest. It was a box. And you'll notice it was gold inside and outside. It was made of chitim wood, of wood that was more or less indestructible, very much like our redwood here in California. And it's a perfect symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ in his deity and humanity. You see Christ as the God-man. And we find here that we have both his deity and his humanity. And it was a true symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ setting forth, therefore, both his deity represented by the gold and his humanity represented by the wood. It spoke of him in the hypostatic union. Now, that's a big word. The hypostatical union means that he's very God of very God and he's very man of very man. That's what the oldest creed of the church says. Now, the ark could not be spoken of as merely a wooden box, for it contained gold. And it could not be called a golden chest, for it contained wood. It required both to maintain the symbolism pointing to Christ as the God-man. And there's no mingling of the two. To overlook this duality is to entertain a monstrous notion of his person. There is no doctrine, friends of the Scripture, so filled with infinite mystery, so far removed from the skein of man's thinking, so foreign to the realm of explanation than is the hypostatic union in Christ. Yet there is no symbol so simple as the ark, merely a box made of wood and gold, yet it speaks of things unfathomable. Truly God chooses the simple things to confound the wise. That simple box tells out the whole story as far as man 
can take it in of the unsearchable mysteries of the blessed person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the goal was both inside and out. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's what Paul said in Colossians 2.9. He's not merely a thaumaturgist, that is, a wonder worker. Neither was he a man with an overdeveloped God consciousness. He was God. He spoke as God. He put himself on the same plane as God. He says, You believe in God, believe also in me. And again, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. But he was a perfect man. He grew tired. He sat down in a well in Samaria in the cool of the day. He slept. He ate. He drank. He laughed. He wept. And beyond all that, he suffered and he died. And all of these are human characteristics. The gold and the wood in the ark are both required, yet neither was mingled with the other, nor was the identity of one lost in the other. Christ was both God and man, but these two natures were never fused or merged. He never functioned at the same time as both God and man. What he did was either perfectly human or perfectly divine. Christ was the theanthropic person. And the ark was therefore not merely an empty box, by the way. It contained three items which are enumerated over in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 4. It says, "...which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold." wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Now, let's take them up. Aaron's rod that budded speaks of his resurrection. The manna speaks of the fact that he is the bread of life. And the Ten Commandments speaks of the life that he lived down here. He fulfilled the law and he kept it in all of its point. Even fulfilling the prophecies are the things that it speaks of. Even this tabernacle speaks of him. Now, the tables of the covenant speak of the kingship of Christ. He was born a king. He lived a king. He died a king. He rose from the dead as a king. And he's coming again to this earth as the king. And God's program is moving today and has been from eternity to the time when Christ shall rule over this earth. For he will turn and turn until he comes, whose right it is to rule. Now, this earth needs a ruler. Man needs a king. And someday he's coming as king of kings and lord of lords. The Ten Commandments are the tables of stone. And the pot of manna speaks of Christ as prophet. He spoke for God. When Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. And then he not only spoke for God, but he was God's message to man. He was the Logos, the Word of God, the very alphabet of God, the Alpha and the Omega. He's God's final message to man. He is the first and the last. And since Christ came, heaven has been silent, for God has no addenda to place after Christ. He has no postscript to the letter where Christ is the embodiment of that letter. God has told out his heart in Christ. And Aaron's rod in the ark speaks of the work of Christ as priest. The prophet spoke for God before God. The priest spoke for man before God. As a priest, Christ offered himself 
as a priest he passed into heaven, and even now sits on God's right hand. And that is the thing that speaks of. And then we have here the work of Christ as priest. We've already been talking about that. And Aaron's rod which budded was in the holy of holies. Thus today there is in the heaven at God's right hand the man Christ Jesus who was raised from the dead. He's the unique example of resurrection up to the present hour. He's there for us. And Easter lilies and eggs don't speak of the resurrection, friends. It just happens to be that Aaron's rod that budded does, for it was an old dead stick that came alive. And here you have set before us, he is prophet, priest, and king. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled here among us. That's what the ark speaks of. Now, the mercy seat was where it was just the top to the box when blood was put there by the high priest. And we'll go into that in a great deal of detail later. It made that a mercy seat. And it was Christ's death here upon the cross. And he ascended into heaven. And I've taken the position, the mercy seat's the doctrine of propitiation, just as the ark is the doctrine of Christology, of the person of Christ. And this is what he did. He took his blood, presented it in heaven. Now, I take the position he literally did that. The only criticism I've ever had of my book on the tabernacle that I've ever read in any of the denominational papers was a Baptist paper back in Ohio. And the reviewer there, he did recommend the book and he urged the ministers to get it. But the thing that he said was, you have to watch this fellow. He takes everything literally. He thinks Christ offered his blood in heaven. And he said, you know, that's rather crude. Well, I don't think so. I don't think the blood of Christ is crude at all. I feel like Peter called it precious blood, and that's what it is. And it's more precious than gold and silver. And that's the most valuable thing up there, is the blood he shed down here for us. And he presented that just as the high priest went in. And that's the thing that's made God's throne today a mercy seat for us. And we're bidden to come to God today on the basis of the fact that he is our great high priest who's ascended into the heavens and he's offering his sacrifice for us. This is a wonderful truth. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that's passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, you and I go through our great high priest today in heaven, He's the living Christ at God's right hand. We go through him and we find mercy to help today. I think that many believers, they're trying to fight the battle down here alone. They're trying to meet the issues of life alone. And friends, you and I are not able to do it. We're not strong enough. We're not capable to do it. We need help today. And we're not availing ourselves of the help. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that the mighty power that worked in Christ, bringing him from the dead, might work in us today. 
Do you see much of that power working in believers? We need that power today, friends, and we should lay hold of it by faith because you and I have a high priest that's yonder at God's right hand, and this ark and mercy seat set it before us. Now, the high priest in that day, he rushed in, rushed back out. But our great high priest, when he had made this offering, he sat down at God's right hand, and he's there for us. He died down here to save us. He lives up yonder to keep us safe. And by the way, we ought to keep in contact with him. And have you talked to him today? Have you had an interview with him yet today? Oh, my Christian friend, I urge you to make contact with the living Christ. Now we come to the table of showbread. And there are seven articles of furniture in the tabernacle. If you find out where they're placed... It'll sure be helpful. There were three sections or compartments of the tabernacle. We are moving as the Bible moves from the inside where God was. The tabernacle proper was 30 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. And that was divided into two compartments. The Holy of Holies, 10 by 10 by 10. And in it, it had the ark and the mercy seat. We saw that last time. That mercy seat with the cherubim overshadowing it. It is the most ornate part of the tabernacle. There's no idol in there at all. These two cherubim looked down upon the top where the blood was placed. Did you know that was the same thing Adam and Eve saw when they looked back at the Garden of Eden when God put them out? They looked back and they saw cherubims keeping the way of life. They saw the blood of the animals. They were wearing the skins. And the cherubim were looking down. That kept the way of life open. God wasn't blocking them from coming into the Garden of Eden. He was keeping the way open for them to himself. And when Moses made this, it was a replica of the same thing Adam and Eve had seen. Now it looks into the future. It speaks of the fact that Christ today has made a mercy seat for us. That is, the throne of God has become a mercy seat. He died down here took his blood up there, and the throne of God today is a place where a holy God can extend mercy to you and to me. Then when you come into the outer court here, which is the tabernacle proper, the holy place, it has three articles of furniture, the altar of incense, the golden altar, and then the golden lampstand, and the table of showbread. And this was the place of worship. It speaks of worship of God. It's very important. Then in the outer court, you have two articles of furniture, a laver and a brazen altar. And here's where the sin question was settled. These two articles of furniture speak of Christ as he settled the sin question. In the holy place, it's worship. The sin question has to be settled before you can worship God. Now we have the instructions here for the table of showbread. And it's showbread because the table had on it loaves of bread. And they were arranged in two rows of six each. Well, now, there are different explanations of just how they were arranged, and I must confess I can't tell from reading this just how they were. I just feel like it was very simple. There were two rows on top of the table, six in this row, six in that row, and each speaking of a tribe of Israel. In other words, God was providing equally for all. Now, will you notice, I'm reading, "...thou shalt also make a table of chittim wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof." 
and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. Now, you'll notice that the table of showbread, it's two cubits long, and it is a cubit wide, twice as long as it is wide, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. It's the same height as the mercy seat, or the ark. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make thereto a crown of gold round about. That is a border, or a sort of a sideboard around the table. Keep the bread, of course, from falling off. Verse 25, And thou shalt make unto it a border of a handbreadth round about, and thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. And thou shalt make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings in the four corners that are on the four feet thereof. And again, this was staves were to be put through these rings, and on the wilderness march it was carried on the shoulders of priests. Now I turn over and read verse 29, "...and thou shalt make the dishes thereof, and spoons thereof, and covers thereof, and bowls thereof, to cover with all of pure gold shalt thou make them. And thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always." Now, the bread, of course, was a type of Christ, and therefore the table is a type of Christ. It's a picture of Him. And this table of showbread is that which suggests many things. I think that it speaks of sustenance. It speaks of provision. It speaks of supply. And I want to make several suggestions, and will you notice them? It's a table of salvation. Now, Christ gave a parable. You remember in which a king gave a marriage supper for his son. The invited guests refused to come, and this provoked the king to deal with the rejectors. And having done so, he extended the invitation to include those in the highways and byways. And these were bidden to come and to eat. Thus, an invitation has gone out today to the world to come and to partake of the salvation as it is in Christ. And secondly, it's a table of providence. I don't have time to develop this, but God as a creator provides all food for man and beast today. Whether you like it or not, friend, you eat at God's table in the physical realm. And yet how few recognize it today and give thanks to him for his bounty. God is the one who provides for us. And this table also speaks of the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper. This suggests the one that our Lord, you remember, in the upper room established. It's the table for believers. It's a long table extending from the upper room to the upper air. And then, more specifically, I think, the table of showbread is a prefigurement of Christ as the sustainer of spiritual life for the believer. It was two cubits long, one cubit wide, one and a half cubits high, made of chittim wood, overlaid with gold. The incorruptible chittim wood speaks of his humanity. And as the wood was a product of the earth, but not subject to the action of it in a chemical way, thus our Lord had a body made of earth, conceived in the womb of the virgin, and the gold speaks of his deity. The gold is not produced by the earth, but is separate from it. And because of that, it has an inherent value. So Christ was not of the earth in his deity, but he was very God of very God. He came from glory. And so the figure of the golden wood 
we have already seen was further amplified when the ark was looked at last time. Now on the table I will place these twelve loaves of bread, six in a row. And the table and the bread were just called one. In fact, we have that metonymy of speech today, to eat the table of the Lord. Well, you don't eat the table, but that's the way we use it. We associate the table with the food. Eat at my table. Well, gracious, what are you going to do? Chew on a leg of the table? No. The table and the bread are considered one. Now, the bread was changed each Sabbath, and the bread which was removed was eaten with wine by the priestly family in the holy place. And this table, I want to say this, does not prefigure Christ in the same way that the manna does. And we need to be very careful here. I think both speak of Christ, but not in exactly the same connection, although Christ is the bread in both. Now, the manna speaks of Christ as the life giver. He interpreted it himself. You remember in John 6:32, we've already seen that. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, giveth life to the world. I'm the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, the showbread speaks of Christ as the life sustainer. Eternal life is a gift and is the manna that came down from heaven. He that receives the manna receives eternal life. However, eternal life requires a special food to sustain it in growth and strength. And the showbread sets forth Christ as the food for those who've partaken of the manna of life. He's seen in another bit of language that he himself used. The showbread was made of grain. It was ground unleavened, made into bread and baked. It's first stated in Leviticus, Thou shalt take fine flour, bake twelve cakes thereof. Two-tenths deals shall be in one cake. And we find that the Lord Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, he was ground in the mill of suffering. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. He was brought into the fire of suffering and judgment. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. He came forth from the tomb in newness of life, for his soul did not see corruption." Now he lives a resurrection life. He is the showbread now for believers to feed on, to sustain eternal life and growth. The Christian is to feed on the living Christ. He's to appropriate Christ as he is today, living at God's right hand. He said, I'm the bread of life. There's an ancient proverb that contains the thought that a thing grows by what it feeds on. And there was a book that came out of for dieting not too long ago, and it said, you are what you eat. And the difficulty today is that we've got too many Christians that are not feeding on Christ. You have to feed on him to grow. And you feed upon him as he is today. Paul said, though we knew him in the flesh, we know him no longer after the flesh. He is today the living Christ. 
and we're to grow by looking to Him. Now we come to the lampstand here, and that instruction is given in verse 31. Our translation calls it candlestick. Really, it was a lampstand. And thou shalt make a candlestick, a lampstand of pure gold. Of beaten work shall a lampstand be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, his flowers shall be of the same. And six branches shall come out of the sides of it, three branches of the lampstand out of the one side, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side, three bowls made like unto almonds, with a knop and a flower in one branch, and so on. Now, I think I can describe this, because this becomes rather tedious in reading it. Verse 40, "...and look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount." Now, the lampstand was, I suppose, the most perfect picture that we have of Christ, of anything in the tabernacle. I think this sets him forth, and of course, it was a pure gold, and it speaks of his deity. It sets him forth as he is God. Now, worship has to do with walking in the light. That's important to see. We saw the table of showbread. Well, that table of showbread speaks of the fact that when you worship God, you must feed on Christ. That's what it means. If you go to church and you're being entertained and being given a book review, are you talking about some social issue today or how to improve Los Angeles? My friend, that's not worshiping God. You're just having a meeting. You only worship God when you feed upon Him who is the table of showbread but you must walk in the light. And he is the light, by the way. And if you wanted natural light, you had to go outside of the tabernacle. If you wanted to walk in the light of the lampstand, you had to go inside. He's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And you find that there are those that darkeneth counsel by words today. And we are told that through philosophy and vain deceit, we can be deceived. God is light, though, and in him is no darkness at all. And the lampstand was actually made of one piece of gold. It was beaten work and highly ornamented. It had a central shaft, but out from that central shaft there were three branches on a side, making seven branches in all. And each branch was like a limb of an almond tree. That is, it had on it a blossom and fruit, and at the top was an open blossom, and in that the lamps were placed. The lamps were filled with oil and put in there. And on top, therefore, of each shaft, there was an open almond blossom, and in each of these was placed the olive oil lamps. Now, the almond blossoms looked like wood, but they were gold. And that reminds us of Aaron's rod that budded. When Aaron's priestly prerogative was in question, the budding of his almond rod established it. Now, the almond rod, a dead branch, was made to live and bear fruit. Christ was established as the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. It didn't make him the Son of God, for he was already that from the eternal counsels of God. Resurrection only confirmed it. Aaron was the God-appointed high priest, and it was confirmed by resurrection in the dead almond rod. The resurrection of Christ likewise established his priesthood. Christ is our great high priest. 
And he became a man. He partook of our nature, tempted in all points as we are, sin apart. But the primary basis of his priesthood is his deity. You see, the priest represented man before God, and Christ as God who became a man. And he's now the God-man who represents man. There's somebody up there that knows me and understands me, and he's able to help me. The resurrection which declared him to be the Son of God likewise declared his priesthood. And the thing that's interesting to me, there was no measurements given here of the lampstand. I wonder if you noticed that. Well, why? Because you can't put a yardstick down on deity, friends. You can't measure him as the Son of God, and you can't understand him at all. But also, there is his humanity. And along with the fact that Jesus wept, he also said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth. And the lampstand gave light in the holy place. It's the place of worship. And the very interesting thing about it, the lampstand held up the lights, the lamps, but they in turn reveal the beauty of the lampstand. Now, the light there, the oil and the light up above there, that represents the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus says, if I send him into the world, and he sent him into the world, why, he says, he'll take the things of mine and show them unto you. And when you and I gather together for worship, or here on the radio like this, and there's some of you riding along in an automobile, there's some of you at home, there's some of you that are in many, many places. It's hard for me to identify where you are right now, but altogether we are meeting around the person of Christ. And he's beautiful, he's lovely, he's wonderful, and he's God. And the Holy Spirit now will take the things of Christ and show them unto us, just as those lamps reveal the beauty of the lampstand, reveals them as the Son of God, the one who came on our behalf and who lives up yonder for us just now. 